Section two of the most extraordinary trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Central Criminal Court, May the fourteenth, eighteen fifty six, part two. On this point, however, Palmer offered no explanation. He was himself a defaulter and could not show at Tattersall's. He produced a piece of paper which he said contained a list of the sums which Cook was entitled to receive, and he mentioned the names of the different persons who were indebted to Cook, and the amounts for which they were respectively liable. Herring held out his hand to take the paper, but Palmer said, "'No, I will keep this document. Here is another piece of paper. Write down what I read to you, and what I have here I will retain, as it will be a check against you. He then dictated the names of the various persons with the sums for which they were liable. Herring observed that it amounted to £1,020. Very well, said Palmer, pay yourself £6, Shelley £30, and if you see Bull, tell him Cook will pay him on Thursday or Friday. And now, he added, how much do you make the balance? Herring replied that he made it £984. Palmer replied that the tot was right, and then went on to say, I will give you sixteen pounds, which will make it one thousand pounds. Pay yourself the two hundred pounds that I owe you for my bill. Pay Padwick three hundred and fifty pounds, and Pratt four hundred and fifty pounds. So we have it here established, beyond all controversy, that Palmer did not hesitate to apply Cook's money to the payment of his own debts. With regard to the debt due to Mr. Padwick, I am assured that it represents monies won by that gentleman, partly from Cook and partly from Palmer, but that Mr. Padwick held Palmer to be the responsible party, and looked to him for payment. The debt to Pratt was Palmer's own affair. Such is the state of things as regard the disposition of the money. Palmer desired Herring to send cheques to Pratt and Padwick at once, and without waiting to draw the money from Tattersall's. To this Herring objected, observing that it would be most injudicious to send the cheques before he was sure of getting the money. "'Ah, oh, well,' said Palmer, "'never mind. It is all right, but come what will, Pratt must be paid, for his claim is on account of a bill of sale for a mare.' Finding it impossible to overcome Herring's objection to send the cheques until he had got the money at Tattersall's, Palmer then proceeded to settle some small betting transactions between himself and that gentleman, amounting to five pounds or thereabouts. He pulled out a fifty-pound note, and Herring, not having full change, gave him a cheque for twenty pounds. Then they parted, Palmer directing him to send down word of his proceedings either to him, Palmer, or to Cook. With this injunction Herring complied, and I shall prove in the course of the trial that the letters he wrote to Cook were intercepted by the postmaster at Rugeley. Not having received as much as he expected at Tattersall's, Herring was unable to pay Padwick the £350, but it is not disputed that he paid £450 to Pratt. On the same day, Palmer went himself to the latter gentleman and paid him other monies, consisting of £30 in notes, and the cheque for £20, which he had received from Herring, and a memorandum was drawn, and to which I shall hereafter have occasion to call attention. So much for Palmer's proceedings in London. 
On the evening of that same day, Monday, he returned home. Arriving at Rugeley about nine o'clock at night, he at once proceeded to visit Cook at the Talbot Arms, and from that time till ten or eleven o'clock he was continually in and out of Cook's room. In the course of the evening he went to a man named Newton, assistant to a surgeon named Salt, and applied for three grains of strychnine, which Newton, knowing Palmer to be a medical practitioner, did not hesitate to give him. Dr. Bamford had sent on this day the same kind of pills that he had sent on Saturday and Sunday. I believe it was the doctor's habit to take the pills himself to the Talbot Arms, and entrust them to the care of the housekeeper, who carried them upstairs. But it was Palmer's practice to come in afterwards, and evening after evening, to administer medicine to the patient. There is no doubt that Cook took pills on Monday night. Whether he took the pills prepared for him by Dr. Bamford, and similar to those which he had taken on Saturday and Sunday, or whether Palmer substituted for Dr. Bamford's pills some of his own concoction, consisting in some measure of strychnine, I must leave for the jury to determine. Certain it is that when he left Cook at eleven o'clock at night, the latter was still comparatively well and comfortable, and cheerful as in the morning but he was not long to continue so. About twelve o'clock, the female servants in the lower part of the house were alarmed by violent screams proceeding from Cook's room. They rushed up and found him in great agony, shrieking dreadfully, shouting, Murder! and calling on Christ to save his soul. He was in intense pain. The eyes were starting out of his head. He was flinging his arms wildly about him, and his whole body was convulsed. He was perfectly conscious, however, and desired that Palmer should be sent for without delay. One of the women ran to fetch him, and he attended in a few minutes. He found Cook still screaming, gasping for breath, and hardly able to speak. He ran back again to procure some medicine, and on his return Cook exclaimed, "'Oh, dear doctor, I shall die!' "'No, my lad, you shall not,' replied Palmer, and he then gave him some more medicine." The sick man vomited almost immediately, but there was no appearance of the pills in the utensil. Shortly afterwards, he became more calm, and called on the women to rub his limbs. They did so, and found them cold and rigid. Presently the symptoms became still more tranquil, and he grew better. But the medical men will depose that the tetanus that affected him was that occasioned by strychnine. His frame, exhausted by the terrible agony it had endured, now fell gradually into repose. Nature asserted her claim to rest, and he began to doze. So matters remained till the morrow, Tuesday the 20th, the day of his death. On the morning of that day, Cook was found comparatively comfortable, though still retaining a vivid impression of the horrors he had suffered the night before. He was quite collected, and conversed rationally with the chambermaid. Palmer, meeting Dr. Bamford that same day, told him that he did not want to have Cook disturbed, for that he was now at his ease, though he had had a fit the night before. This same morning, between the hours of eleven and twelve o'clock, there occurred a very remarkable incident. About that time, Palmer went to the shop of a certain Mr. Hawkins, a druggist at Rugeley. He had not dealt with him for two years before, it being his practice during that period 
to purchase such drugs as he required from Mr. Thirlby, a former assistant of Mr. Hawkins, who had set up business for himself. But on this day Palmer went to Mr. Hawkins' shop, and producing a bottle, informed the assistant that he wanted two drachms of prussic acid. While it was being prepared for him, Mr. Newton, the same man from whom he had on a former occasion obtained strychnine, came into the shop, whereupon Palmer seized him by the arm, and observing that he had something particular to say to him, hurried him into the street, where he kept talking to him on the matter of the smallest possible importance, relating to the precise period at which his employer's son meant to repair to a farm he had taken in the country. They continued to converse on this trivial topic until a gentleman named Brassington, or Grassington, came up, whereupon Mr. Newton turned aside to say a few words to him. Palmer, relieved by this accident, went back into the shop and asked, in addition, for six grains of strychnine and a certain quantity of Batley's liquor of opium. He obtained them, paid for them, and went away. Presently Mr. Newton returned, and being struck with the fact that Palmer's dealing with Hawkins, asked out of passing curiosity what he had come for, and was informed. And here I must mention a fact of some importance respecting Mr. Newton. When examined before the coroner, that gentleman only deposed to one purchase of strychnine by Palmer at Mr. Salt's surgery, and it was only as recently as yesterday that with many expressions of contrition for not having been more explicit, he communicated to the Crown the fact that Palmer had also bought strychnine on Monday night. It is for you, gentlemen, to decide the amount of credit to be attached to this evidence, but you will bear in mind that whatever you may think of Mr. Newton's testimony, that of Mr. Roberts, on whom there is no taint or shadow of suspicion, is decisive with respect to the purchases which the prisoner made on Tuesday at the shop of Mr. Hawkins. I now resume the story of Tuesday's proceedings, with the observation that Cook was entitled to receive the stakes he had won at Shrewsbury. On that day, Palmer sent for Mr. Cheshire, the postmaster of Rugeley. He owed Cheshire seven pounds odd, and the latter, supposing that he was about to be paid, came with a stamped receipt in his hand. Palmer produced a paper, and remarking that Cook was too ill to write himself, told Cheshire to draw a cheque on Weatherby's in his, Palmer's, favour for £350. Cheshire thereupon filled up a piece of paper purporting to be the body of a cheque, addressed in the manner indicated to the Messrs. Weatherby, and concluding with the word, and placed the same to my account. Palmer then took the document away, for the purpose, as he averred, of getting Cook's signature to it. What became of it I do not undertake to assert, but of this there is no question, that by that night's post Palmer sent up to Weatherby's a cheque which was returned dishonoured. Whether it was genuine, or like so many other papers with which Palmer had to do, forged, is a question which you will have to determine. And now, returning to Cook, it may be observed that in the course of that morning coffee and broth were sent him by Palmer, and, as usual, vomiting ensued and continued through the whole of the afternoon. And now a new person makes his appearance on the stage. You must know that on Sunday Palmer wrote to Mr. W. H. Jones, a surgeon of Lutterworth, desiring him to come over to see Cook. 
Cook was a personal friend of Mr. Jones, and had occasionally been in the habit of residing at his house. It is deserving of remark that Palmer, in his letter to Jones, describes Cook as suffering from a severe bilious attack accompanied with diarrhoea, adding, It is desirable for you to come and see him as soon as possible. Whether this communication is to be interpreted in a sense favourable to the prisoner, or whether it is to be taken as indicating a deep design to give colour to the idea that Cook died a natural death, it is at least certain that the statement that Cook had been suffering from a bilious attack attended with diarrhoea was utterly untrue. Mr. Jones, being himself unwell, did not come to Rugeley till Tuesday. He arrived at about three o'clock on that day, and immediately proceeded to see his sick friend. Palmer came in at the same moment, and they both examined the patient. Mr. Jones paid particular attention to the state of his tongue, remarked, "'That is not the tongue of a bilious fever.' About seven o'clock that same evening, Dr. Bamford called, and found the patient pretty well. Subsequently, the three medical men, Palmer, Bamford and Jones, held a consultation. But before leaving the bedroom for that purpose, Cook beckoned to Palmer and said, "'Mind, I will have no more pills or medicine to-night.' Then they withdrew and consulted. Palmer insisted on his taking pills, but added, "'Let us not tell him what they contain, as he fears the same results that have already given him such pain.' It was agreed that Dr. Bamford should make up the pills, which were to be composed of the same ingredients as those that had been administered on the three preceding evenings. The doctor repaired to his surgery, and made them up accordingly. He was followed by Palmer, who asked him to write the directions how they were to be taken. Mr. Bamford, though unable to understand the necessity of his doing so under the circumstances, complied with Palmer's request, and wrote on the box that the pills were to be taken at bedtime. Palmer then took them away, and gave either those pills, or some others, to Cook that night. It is remarkable, however, that half or three-quarters of an hour elapsed from the time he left Dr. Bamford's surgery, until he brought the pills to Cook. When, at length, he came, he produced two pills, but before giving them to Cook, he took especial care to call Mr. Jones's attention to the directions on the lid, observing that the writing was singularly distinct and vigorous for a man upwards of eighty. If the prisoner be guilty, it is a natural presumption that he made this observation with the view of identifying the pill-box as having come from Dr. Bamford, and so averting suspicion from himself. This was about half-past ten at night. The pills were then offered to Cook, who strongly objected to take them, remarking that they had made him ill at night before. Palmer insisted, and the sick man at last consented to take them. He vomited immediately after, but did not bring up the pills. Jones then went down and took his supper, and he will tell you that up to the period when the pills were administered, Cook had been easy and cheerful, and presented no symptom of the approach of disease, much less of death. It was arranged that Jones should sleep in the same room with Cook, and he did so. But he had not been more than fifteen or twenty minutes in bed when he was aroused by a sudden exclamation and a frightful scream from Cook, who, starting up, said, "'Send for the doctor immediately. I'm going to be ill, as I was last night.' 
the chambermaid ran across the road and rang the bell of palmer's house and in a moment palmer was at the window he was told that cook was again ill in two minutes he was by the bedside of the sick man and strangely volunteered the observation i never dressed so quickly in my life it is for you gentlemen to say whether you think he had time to dress at all cook was found in the same condition and with the same symptoms as the night before gasping for breath screaming violently his body convulsed with cramps and spasms and his neck rigid jones raised him and rubbed his neck when palmer entered the room cook asked him for the same remedy that had relieved him the night before i will run back and fetch it said palmer and he darted out of the room in the passage he met two female servants who remarked that cook was as bad as he had been last night he is not within fifty times as bad as he was last night and what a game is this to be at every night was palmer's reply in a few minutes he returned with two pills which he told jones were ammonia though i am assured that it is a drug that requires much time in the preparation and can with difficulty be made into pills the sick man swallowed these pills but brought them up again immediately and now ensued a terrible scene he was instantly seized with violent convulsions by degrees his body began to stiffen out then suffocation commenced agonized with pain he repeatedly entreated to be raised they tried to raise him but it was not possible the body had become rigid as iron and it could not be done he then said pray turn me over they did turn him over on the right side he gasped for breath but could utter no more in a few moments all was tranquil the tide of life was ebbing fast jones leant over him to listen to the action of the heart gradually the pulse ceased all was over he was dead sensation i will show you that his was a death referable in its symptoms to the tetanus produced by strychnine and not to any other possible form of tetanus scarcely was the breath out of his body when palmer begins to think of what is to be done he engages two women to lay out the corpse and these women on entering the room find him searching the pockets of a coat which no doubt belonged to cook and hunting under the pillows and bolsters they saw some letters in the mantel-shelf which in all probability had been taken out of the dead man's pocket and what is very remarkable is that from that day to this nothing has been seen or heard either of the betting book or of any of the papers connected with cook's money affairs on a subsequent day thursday he returned and on the pretence of looking for some books and a paper-knife rummaged again through the documents of the deceased on the twenty fifth of november he sent for cheshire and producing a paper purporting to bear the signature of cook asked him to attest it cheshire glanced over it it was a document in which cook acknowledged that certain bills to the amount of four thousand pounds or thereabouts were bills that had been negotiated for his cook's benefit and in respect of which palmer had received no consideration such was the paper to which forty-eight hours after the death of the man whose name it bore palmer did not hesitate to ask cheshire to be an attesting witness cheshire though unfortunately for himself too much the slave of palmer peremptorily refused to comply with this request 
whereupon Palmer carelessly observed, "'It is of no consequence. I dare say the signature will not be disputed, but it occurred to me that it would look more regular if it were attested.' On Friday, Mr. Stevens, Cook's father-in-law, came down to Rugeley, and after viewing the body of his relative, to whom he had been tenderly attached, asked Palmer about his affairs. Palmer assured him that he held a paper drawn up by a lawyer and signed by Cook, stating that, in respect of £4,000 worth of bills, he, Cook, was alone liable, and that Palmer had a claim to that amount against his estate. Mr. Stevens expressed his amazement, and replied that there would not be 4,000 shillings for the holders of the bills. Subsequently, Palmer displayed an eager officiousness in the matter of the funeral, taking upon himself to order a shell and an oak coffin, without any directions to that effect from the relatives of the deceased, who were anxious to have the arrangements in their own hands. Mr. Stevens ordered dinner at the hotel for Bamford, Jones, and himself, and finding Palmer still hanging about him, thought it but civil to extend the invitation to him. Accordingly, they all sat down together. After dinner, Mr. Stevens asked Jones to step upstairs and bring down all books and papers belonging to Cook. Jones left the room to do so, and Palmer followed him. They were absent about ten minutes, and on their return, Jones observed that they were unable to find the betting book or any of the papers belonging to the deceased. Palmer added, The betting book will be of no use to you if you found it, for the bets are void by his death. Mr. Stevens replied, the book must be found. And then Palmer, changing his tone, said, Oh, I dare say it will turn up. Mr. Stevens then rang the bell, and told the housekeeper to take charge of whatever books and papers had belonged to Cook, and to be sure not to allow anyone to meddle with them until he came back from London, which he would soon do, with his solicitor. He then departed, but, returning to Rugeley after a brief interval, declared his intention to have a post-mortem examination. Palmer volunteered to nominate the surgeons who would conduct it, but Mr. Stevens refused to employ any one whom he should recommend. On Sunday the 26th, Palmer called on Dr. Bamford and asked him for a certificate attesting the cause of Cook's death. The doctor expressed his surprise and observed, "'Why, he was your patient?' But Palmer importuned him, and Bamford, taking the pen, filled up the certificate, and entered the cause of death as apoplexy. Dr. Bamford is upwards of eighty, and I hope that it is to some infirmity connected with his great age that this most unjustifiable act is to be attributed. However, he shall be produced in court, and he will tell you that apoplexy has never been known to produce tetanus. In the course of the day, Palmer sent for Newton, and after they had had some brandy and water, asked him how much strychnine he would use to kill a dog. Newton replied, from half a grain to a grain. And how much, inquired Palmer, would be found in the tissues and intestines after death? None at all, was Newton's reply. But that is a point on which I will produce important evidence. The post-mortem examination took place the next day, and on that occasion Palmer assured the medical men of whom there were many present, that Cook had had epileptic fits on Monday and Tuesday, and that they would find old disease in the heart and head. 
He added that the poor fellow was full of disease, and had all kinds of complaints. These statements were completely disproved by the post-mortem examinations. At the first of them, conducted by Dr. Devonshire, the liver, lungs, and kidneys were all found healthy. It was said that there were some slight indications of congestion of the kidneys, whether due to decomposition or to what other cause it was not certain, but it was admitted on all hands that they did not impair the general health of the system, or at all account for death. The stomach and intestines were examined, and they exhibited a few white spots in the large end of the stomach, but these marks were wholly insufficient to explain the cause of dissolution. Dr. Bamford contended that there was some slight congestion of the brain, but all the other medical men concurred in thinking that there was none at all. In the ensuing month of January, the body was exhumed with a view to more accurate examination, and the body was then found to be in a perfectly normal and healthy condition. Palmer seemed rejoiced at the discovery, and, turning to Dr. Bamford, exclaimed, "'Doctor, they won't hang us yet!' The stomach and intestines were taken out and placed in a jar, and it was observed that Palmer pushed against the medical man who was engaged in the operation, and the jar was in danger of being upset. It escaped, however, and was covered with skins, tied down and sealed. Presently one of the medical men turned round, and finding that the jar had disappeared, asked what had become of it. It was found at a distance, near a different door from that through which people usually passed in and out, and Palmer exclaimed, "'It's all right. It was I who removed it. I thought it would be more convenient for you to have it here, that you might lay your hands readily on it as you went out.' When the jar was recovered, it was found that two slits had been cut in the skins with a knife. The slits, however, were clean, so that, whatever his object may have been in making the incisions, it is certain that nothing was taken out of the jar.' He goes to Dr. Bamford and remonstrates against the removal of the jars. He says, I do not think we ought to allow them to be taken away. Now, if he had been an ignorant person, not familiar with the course likely to be pursued by medical men under such circumstances, there might be some excuse for this. But it is for you to ask yourselves whether Palmer, himself a medical man, knowing that the contents of the jars were to be submitted to an analysis, might not have relied with confidence on the honour and integrity of the profession to which he belonged. You must say whether his anxiety to prevent the removal of the jars was not a sign of a guilty conscience. Dr. Bamford was a most respectable physician, and his character and position were well known to Palmer. But the case does not stop here. The jar was delivered to Mr. Boycott, the clerk to Mr. Gardiner, the solicitor, Palmer, finding that it was to be sent to London for chemical analysis, was extremely anxious that it should not reach its destination. It was going to be conveyed by Mr. Boycott to the Stafford station in a fly, driven by a postboy. Palmer goes to this postboy and asks him whether it is the fact that he is going to drive Boycott to Stafford. He is answered in the affirmative. He then asks, Are the jars there? He is told that they are. He says, they have no business to take them. One does not know what they may put in them. Can't you manage to upset the fly and break them? I will give you ten pounds and make it all right for you. The man said, I shall do no such thing. 
I must go and look after my fly. That man will be called before you, and he will have no interest to state anything but the truth. I have now gone through the painful history, yet there are some points of minor importance which I ought not altogether to pass over, as nothing connected with the conduct of a man conscious that an imputation of this kind rests upon him can be immaterial. After the post-mortem examination, it was thought right to hold a coroner's inquest. On two or three occasions in the course of that inquiry, Palmer sent presents to the coroner. The stomach of the deceased and its contents were sent to Dr. Taylor and Dr. Rees at Guy's Hospital, who were known to be in communication with Mr. Gardner. A letter was sent by Dr. Taylor to Mr. Gardner, stating the result of the investigation. That letter was betrayed to Palmer by the postmaster, Cheshire, and Palmer then wrote to the coroner, telling him that Dr. Taylor and Dr. Rees had failed in finding traces of poison, and asking him to take a certain course with respect to the evidence. Why should he have done this, if there had not been a feeling of uneasiness upon his mind? These matters must not be wholly overlooked, although I will not ask you to give them any undue importance. I should have told you, in addition, that the prisoner had no money prior to Shrewsbury races, while afterwards he was flush of cash. Sums of £100 and £150 were paid by him into the bank at Rugeley. Two or three persons received sums of £10 each, and he seemed, in fact, to be giving away money right and left. I think I shall be able to show that he had something like £400 in his possession. Now Cook had £700 or £800 when he left Shrewsbury on the Thursday morning. None is found. It may be that Cook, who, whatever his faults, was a kind-hearted creature, compassionating Palmer's condition, and influenced by his representations, assisted him with money. That I do not know. I do not wish to strain the point too far, but one cannot imagine that Cook, who had no money but what he took with him to Shrewsbury, should have given Palmer everything and left himself destitute. The case then stands thus. Here is a man overwhelmed with pecuniary difficulties, obliged to resort to the desperate expedient of forging acceptances to raise money, hoping to meet them by the proceeds of the insurances he had effected upon a life. Disappointed in that expectation by the board, told by the gentleman through whom the bills had been discounted, you must trifle with me no longer. If you cannot find money, writs will be served on you. Cook's name forged to an endorsement for £375, ruin staring him in the face. You, gentlemen, must say whether he had not sufficient inducement to commit the crime. He seems to have had a further object. No sooner is the breath out of the dead man's body than he says to Jones, I had a claim of £3,000 or £4,000 against him on account of bills. Besides, he believed that Cook had more property than it turns out he really had. The valuable mare, Polestar, belonged to him when the assignment had been paid off, and Palmer would have been glad to obtain possession of her. The fact, too, that Cook was mixed up in the insurance of Bates may lead one to surmise that he was in possession of secrets relating to the desperate expedients to which this man has resorted to obtain money. I will leave you to say whether this combination of motives, 
may not have led to the crime with which he is charged. This you will only have to consider, supposing the case to be balanced between probabilities. But if you believe the evidence that will be given as to what took place on the Monday and the Tuesday, if you believe the paroxysms of the Monday, the mortal agony of the Tuesday, I shall show that things were administered on both those days by the hand of Palmer, by a degree of evidence almost amounting to certainty. The body was submitted to a careful analysis, and I am bound to say that no trace of strychnine was found. But I am told that, although the presence of strychnine may be detected by certain tests, and although indications of its presence lead irresistibly to the conclusion that it has been administered, the converse of that proposition does not hold. Sometimes it is found, at other times it is not. It depends upon circumstances. A most minute dose will destroy life. From half to three quarters of a grain will lay the strongest man prostrate. But in order to produce that fatal effect, it must be absorbed into the system, and the absorption takes place in a greater or less period according to the manner in which the poison is presented to the surfaces with which it comes in contact. If it is in a fluid form, it is rapidly taken up and soon produces the effect. If not, it requires to be absorbed, and the effects are a longer time in showing themselves. But in either case, there is a difficulty in discovering its presence. If it acts only on the nervous system through the circulation, an almost infinitesimal dose will be present. And, as it is a vegetable poison, the tests which alone can be employed are infinitely more delicate and difficult than those which are applied to other poisons. It is unlike a mineral poison, which can soon be detected and reproduced. If the dose has been a large one, death ensues before the whole has been absorbed, and a portion is left in the intestine. But if a minimum dose has been administered, a different consequence follows, and the whole is absorbed. Practical experience bears out the theory that I am enunciating. Experiments have been tried which show that where the same amount of poison has been administered to animals of the same species, death will ensue in the same number of minutes, accompanied by precisely the same kinds of symptoms, while in the analysis afterwards made, the presence of poison will be detected in one case and not in another. It has been repeated over and over again that the scientific men employed in this case had come to the conclusion that the presence of strychnine cannot be detected by any tests known to science. They have been grievously misunderstood. They never made any such assertion. What they have asserted is this, the detection of its presence, where its administration is a matter of certainty, is a matter of the greatest uncertainty. It would indeed be a fatal thing to sanction the notion that strychnine, administered for the purpose of taking away life, cannot afterwards be detected. Lamentable enough is the uncertainty of detection. Happily, Providence, which has placed this fatal agent at the disposition of man, has marked its effect with characteristic symptoms distinguishable from those of all other agents by the eye of science. It will be for you to say whether the testimony that will be laid before you with regard to those symptoms does not lead your mind to the conclusion that the deceased came to his death by poison administered to him by the prisoner. There is a circumstance which throws great light upon this part of the case. Some days before his death, 
the man was constantly vomiting. The analysis made of his body failed to produce evidence of the presence of strychnine, but did not fail to produce evidence of the presence of antimony. Now, antimony was not administered by the medical men, and unless taken in a considerable quantity, it produces no effect and is perfectly soluble. It is an irritant which produces exactly the symptoms which were produced in this case. The man was sick for a week, and antimony was found in his body afterwards. But for what purpose can it have been administered? It may be that the original intention was to destroy him by means of antimony. It may be that the only object was to bring about an appearance of disease so as to account for death. One is lost in speculation. But the question is whether you have any doubt that strychnine was administered on the Monday, and still more on the Tuesday, when death ensued. And if you are satisfied with the evidence that will be adduced on that point, you must determine whether it was not administered by the prisoner's hand. I shall produce testimony before you, in proof of the statements I have made, which I am afraid must occupy some considerable portion of your time, but in such an inquiry time cannot be wasted, and I am sure you will give it your most patient attention. I have the satisfaction of knowing that the prisoner will be defended by one of the most eloquent and able men who ever adorned the bar of this country, or any other forum, and that everything will be done for him that can be done. If in the end all should fail in satisfying you of his guilt, in God's name let not the innocent suffer. If, on the other hand, the facts that will be presented to you should lead you to the conclusion that he is guilty, the best interests of society demand his conviction. The opening address of the Attorney General occupied upwards of four hours in its delivery. At its conclusion, at a quarter past two o'clock, the jury retired for a short time for refreshment, and upon their return, the following witnesses were called in support of the prosecution. End of section two.